This is the Neurodivergent Woman Podcast. I'm Monique Mitchelson, and I'm a clinical psychologist. And I'm Michelle Levoque, and I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. This is a podcast where we centre and showcase neurodivergent women from all walks of life. Covering autism to ADHD and everything in between, we aim to educate and inspire women who think differently. In today's episode, Monique and I are going to be talking about parenting and neurodivergence. So what are some of the issues that come up for neurodivergent parents, particularly neurodivergent parents parenting neurodivergent children? And what are some of the strengths of being a neurodivergent parent with neurodivergent kids and some of the challenges as well? So with neurodivergence and parenting, I think the first thing to talk about is the fact that neurodivergence is quite genetic. So when we look at the studies that have been done, for example, with ADHD, studies have found that if you have a diagnosis of ADHD, there's a 50 to 70% chance that at least one of your parents is an ADHDer. And the figures are very similar with autism as well. And I think this research has been more recent coming out. So in previous years with neurodiversity, Uh, a lot of the focus very much was on children that had been diagnosed without the heritability and genetics being recognised. Like, okay, well, if these children are being diagnosed, what about the parents? What about the extended family? What about the whole dyad and the, the interactions between family members? And what happens if your whole family is actually neurodivergent? Yeah, and I often find that for a lot of adult diagnosed individuals, they come to that through their children receiving a diagnosis. It's often that experience of finding out all this information about why their children's brains think the way that they do and what makes their children tick. And as they're going through that thinking, oh my God, this sounds familiar. (laughs) This sounds like how I do that. One of the funnier experiences that I often have is in kind of initial intake sessions when a parent is sort of explaining a bunch of different behaviors they might see in their child and then the other parent might say, oh yeah, but that's normal. That's what I do as well. I guess it's that reframing of, yes, it is absolutely normal. You know, it's normal to have massive variations in the human experience, the human population, how we think about things and how we act. But maybe that's a sign that this is how your brain works as well. Yeah, that's interesting. I do think if you have grown up in a neurodivergent family where like most family members are neurodivergent, then you really think, okay, what I'm experiencing and what my parents were like and what their parents were like, you know, isn't this, yeah, like isn't this just typical? Um, Mm. Isn't this what everyone else experiences? And then, yeah, when the younger generations start to get diagnosed um, and exactly what you're saying, people learn this information, it's like, ah, okay, this explains a few things. Mm. Mm. And really it's just a different way to think about something that a lot of people already know or conceptualize intuitively, which is, you know, oh, little Sam, he's just like Uncle Mike or Sarah. Yeah, she's like Nana. Mm -hmm. Right. And that hasn't ceased to be true. 
that is still true. But I guess kind of framing it or thinking about it through the neurodiversity lens is really the point of it as I see it is kind of de-shaming some of those more challenging traits that people might experience or the difficulties people might experience in their life rather than just sort of passing it off as, oh yeah, she's just like Nana. If we understand that maybe Sally and Nana are the same because they're both ADHDers or they're both autistic, then that usually means that Sally is going to have a much better understanding of herself and have an easier time in life. And probably Nana would have as well had she had the opportunity to understand herself more. Yeah, I think when there is that tipping point of someone in the family getting diagnosed, which leads to more people recognizing their own traits Mm -hmm. and potentially getting diagnosed It can really open up more understanding and compassion of yourself, but actually also for that intergenerational neurodiversity Mm. that people may not have realized was actually there. And you go, oh, okay, that explains, you know, why this person reacts in this way or has these challenges or these strengths. Um, And it can just, yeah, really help with processing family stuff, I think, and having compassion for family members. For sure. And I think it can be a really helpful way to understand the why of something. For a lot of people who maybe have difficult relationships, for instance, with family members of older generations, and, you know, they may have always really struggled to understand why that family member acted that way or what was motivating that person's behavior or why did they have so much trouble regulating their emotions and were so reactive Having a family member be neurodivergent obviously doesn't mean that it was okay if you experienced trauma at the hands of that person or, you know, you had a really problematic relationship with someone in childhood. But I think it can actually help you understand what was driving some of those things and it can actually help you make peace in yourself you know, and almost take away some of that blame for yourself if it was a traumatic or abusive relationship in any way, which is, okay, now I understand more about why this family member behaved or acted in that way. And that really frees a lot of the blame from me, you know, as a child in that situation. Of course, I didn't know how to handle that. Of course, that was scary for me. That person didn't know themselves as well. So, you know, We say it a lot on this podcast and it's super cliche, but it is also super true. Knowledge is so powerful and knowledge has the power to heal so many things. So I guess just on that, we know that genetics or heritability is the strongest predictor of neurodivergence. So, you know, you're most likely to be neurodivergent if there's a genetic link to that in your family members. But the other thing that is really important to be thinking about is the impact of your environment and your family situation on how you function with your neurodivergence. You know, so did you grow up in a family where you learnt either explicitly or through modelling emotion regulation? Did you grow up in a family where you were taught how to compensate for executive function difficulties? Did you go to a school that provided you with structure and scaffolding? You know, I had a really interesting um, session with someone a few weeks ago where they were explaining to me that contrary to what is the usual experience where primary school is easier and more scaffolded and high school is harder and less scaffolded, they actually had the reverse experience where they really struggled in primary school because they struggled with that executive function load of getting their assignments together and whatnot in late primary But the high school that they happened to go to 
was just super amazing at providing these really kind of structured outlines and examples of every single assignment that they had to do. So they did really well in high school. So I guess that just exemplifies how we function is really related to the environment that we're in and that kind of person environment fit. And if you're someone who you know, is experiencing more challenges with your neurodiversity, it may be that particularly in your childhood, uh, you weren't really provided the opportunities to be able to learn coping strategies or mechanisms or ways of supporting those areas of challenge. Yeah, I think that's so true. Um, and what can sometimes happen is if you have parents that are neurodiverse, but they don't actually know that at the time, you can be brought up either in a way where the environment is really good that they're setting up for their neurodiversity. Therefore, it actually really fits your neurodiversity if you share the same neurodiversity or if you have different neurodiversities that are opposing each other or have different needs, it can make things really difficult. Same for if For example, you're growing up in a neurotypical family and you're the only neurodivergent um, child in the family, things can be difficult because that there's that different match. So like, for example, in my family growing up, my dad had a real need for structure, order and routine. So we also grew up in a small regional town where there was a very low level of sensory overload. Uh, we lived in the forest with no neighbours or people around. In a house though, right? Yeah, <laughs> in a house in the forest. And yeah, from day to day, we had a strict routine. We knew exactly what was happening from the time we woke up in the morning to the time we went to bed. We woke up at the same time every day, had meals at the same time, had the same foods every week, went to the same stores. We had lists on the bathroom door instructing us like what to do in what order of like you know brush your teeth then you know wash your face and yeah like I was lucky enough to have a mum whose special interest was uh children and learning and my mum would actually sit down with me and do my homework and assignments with me and actually structure them and tell me how to do assignments Mm -hmm. and how to learn Um, So, like, I was really lucky in that I had a lot of scaffolding and an ideal environment um, that met my needs. And, yeah, I think it's it's important to think through some of these things and to think through, like, what worked for you in your childhood, what didn't work for you in your environment when you're bringing up your own children. Yeah, for sure. That is such a good point. And I think it really speaks to, I guess, one of two ways it can go as a neurodivergent parent parenting neurodivergent kids. You know, you can have the amazing benefit, and this is one of really the key benefits of being a neurodivergent parent with neurodivergent kids, is that you think the same in in some respects. Your brains need a similar setup, a similar structure, a similar lifestyle to function optimally. So you really have this incredible opportunity to create almost like an oasis in your home where that child can then come in, feel like it's a really good brain environment fit um, and feel really comfortable, you know, being themselves, doing the things that their brain needs to feel regulated and feel safe and feel joy. 
I think the tricky thing and the flip side of that can be if you're someone who's been taught that your needs are wrong your entire life and you're taught that you just need to get over that or you just need to do things differently or it's laziness or it's selfishness or it's rudeness or it's, you know, whatever other word you want to use um, as an explanation for the reasons why you think and do the things that you do, then often your response can actually be the reverse and it's really your nervous system trying to protect and keep safe your offspring, right? When you think, okay, well, I really need to make sure from the get-go that I train this out of my child. And it can be quite scary and quite confronting and frightening, terrifying even at a subconscious level when you realize that your child has similar traits or similar experiences or similar ways of processing things as you if you were punished or traumatized because of those exact same traits or, or ways of processing. So I think, you know, one of the really important things about learning about your own neurodiversity and your own brain and how you work either before you have children or, you know, while you have children, it's never too late. It really has this incredible flow on effect where it enables you to feel compassion for the things that frighten you about yourself that you see in your child. Yeah, I think the number one thing with parenting really is uh, understanding yourself and understanding your own neurodivergence. Because when you really understand neurodiversity and you do a deep dive into, you know, what works for me, what doesn't work for me now as an adult, but really reflecting on your own childhood and what worked for you, what didn't work for you, it gives you that additional understanding of, uh, yeah, what's going to work for your children and not work for them. And you can create a life and a lifestyle and an environment that ideally balances everyone's needs in your family dynamic because people can have, yeah, differing neurodiversities. So if you have a parent that's autistic and then has a need for that routine and quiet and sensory sensitivities. And then you have a child that is maybe an ADHD and is very active and uh, noisy. Um, you know, how do you balance those two opposing needs and understand the different neurodiversities going on in the household? Yeah. And I mean, it, it can be challenging. It is challenging. Um, and I think this is one of the tricky things, again, you know, where we've got kind of two ends of a scale here where, you know, you can have a child where you see a lot of yourself in that child and that can be a wonderful thing and that can be a terrifying thing. Mm. And you can also have a child that you think, who is this gorgeous alien that has landed with me? And that can be amazing because it allows you this incredible opportunity to get to know this completely different human being but it also has a lot of challenges with it because you don't know what works for that type of person, right? Because mm. you haven't had that lived experience. And, you know, it can be incredibly challenging to work out, okay, I've got XYZ needs, my child has ABCD needs, and they're completely different. But something that I think is super important to remember is that three entity model of a relationship. So we have me, we have you, and we have us, and that's any relationship. Doesn't matter if it's parent or child, romantic, friendship, whatever. The really tricky thing, I think, in a parent child relationship, and particularly a mother child dyad, is that 
you go from that perinatal early infancy newborn stage where your baby doesn't really have a me. (laughs) It's pretty much completely wrapped up in the us that is the two of you. As that child grows and becomes its own person and develops itself, the me that is your child um, starts to become more independent from you. So I think a big challenge that a lot of mothers have is feeling like no matter how old my child is, I actually have to address or meet every need that my child has. I have to be the sole provider of all of my child's multifaceted needs, um, you know, emotional needs, practical needs, physical needs, everything, sensory needs, you know, as part of that. But that's not really true. Not all needs need to be met inside a relationship. There's lots of things that can be met outside the relationship. If your child, for instance, needs a lot of physical movement and you need downtime and rest at the end of the day, that could be that your child goes outside, jumps on the trampoline away from you for however long. Just a kind of silly example, but just showing that you don't need to be present or engaged while your child, all your child's needs are being met. And I think, you know, big issue that a lot of uh, parents, particularly of sensory-seeking neurodivergent children, and they could be autistic sensory-seeking neurodivergent kids or ADHDers, is feeling like, okay, I know I was criticized and traumatized and prevented from having my sensory needs met as a child, and that was horrible for me. So there's no way that I'm ever going to let my child experience that. But what ends up happening is that we think then, so next step, next logical step from that is I have to let my child use my body as a sensory tool all day, every day. It's okay if you tell them that they can't do that, if you redirect them, because what's going to happen if you just continue to allow them to do that all the while your internal lava or your internal overwhelm is building and building and building you're going to over-respond. And we talked a little bit about this in our uh, last episode with Amanda, the importance of actually expressing your anger. And anger is just a boundary. Anger saying, I don't like this at lower levels. So it's okay to redirect your child if their needs are significantly infringing on your own regulation. Another really important thing to keep in mind when we are setting boundaries for ourselves and for our children is how escalated are we? How reactive are we? Are we in a more kind of reactive emotional state? Are we feeling really upset and angry about what they've done? Or are we in a calmer, more receptive, logical, um, relating state? So I always like to think about where that word discipline actually comes from. And discipline and disciple have the same Latin root. So discipline essentially means to teach, to teach something as any person who's been to high school or primary school can tell you a teacher that is blowing their stack, that is super escalated, is not effectively teaching anything. To be able to be effective teachers, we need to be in a regulated state ourselves. Otherwise, you're actually not disciplining your child, you're just reacting. So boundaries are so important, um, really important part of parenting, but it's important to also think about why is this behavior not okay? What is it that I actually want to teach my child here? 
And how can I best do that? So, you know, when we think about the whole overtouching and children being super tactile, it might be that, yeah, this is a really important boundary that I need to set for my child and for myself. Um, it's not okay just to climb over people willy-nilly, touch them without their consent. So the lesson you're trying to teach there might be everyone has bodily autonomy. Everyone owns their body and everyone gets to say when they're sick of being touched. That's a really important lesson for young children to learn because if they don't learn that lesson, they're going to go into kindy or prep or preschool and they're probably going to get whacked by another kid who doesn't like being touched. So we can't do that though. We can't effectively teach that lesson if you're so escalated because it's been going on for so long that you just grab them and push them away, right? That's a reactive response. So always be thinking about, What's the lesson here and how can I best teach it? Yeah, I really like the the idea that you've brought up, Michelle, about that balance between meeting your own needs as a parent and the child's needs also being met. And, and just in reflection upon that, I think this is where it's really important to reflect on like your own childhood and, you know, what, what parents did right. For example, my parents were definitely not perfect parents, um, but like in reflection, uh, both my brother and I were very sensory seeking and we literally had st- stations around our house and yard where we would just bounce on the trampoline for hours. We would dig in the sand pit. We would climb trees. We would like spend hours just walking around in the forest all without parents being like super involved, but we knew that they were there like if we sort of needed to go to them. Um, but yeah, there was a lot of different spaces that we could use to actually regulate ourselves and meet three needs. And like, I was an extremely loud child. <laughs> um, but yeah, I never really remember getting like punished or like anything like that for being very loud mm-hmm. <laughs> and noisy. Um, so yeah, I think everyone's going to have different experiences from their childhood. But yeah, it is useful to think back to like what works. And what worked for you if you were very sensory seeking as a child and really putting in place tools and like activities you can redirect your children towards to get those sensory needs met? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, really when we're thinking about, okay, particularly in the parent-child dyad, what needs do need to be met within the relationship? Really, The only thing that needs to be met within that parent-child dyad is providing your child with a secure sense of attachment, making your child feel like they are valued, loved, supported enough so that they feel safe to go out into the world and allowing them to feel that sense of, I can make a mistake or do a silly thing or just get a bit frightened And then there's going to be a safe base for me to come back to. A really great book on that topic is called Raising a Secure Child. Um, I can't recall off the top of my head who the authors are, but if you just Google Raising a Secure Child, it'll come straight up. Um, It's a really fantastic book at identifying our own attachment wounds, you know, as adults and how that can impact or affect our ability to kind of raise a secure child essentially um you know with our kids it is written from a neurotypical perspective so there may be things in there that are not um 100 relevant but i think it is a really great book and i just go on that little side tangent just to emphasize that you know being a parent 
as again, as we chatted about in our last episode with Amanda, there are so many expectations on what it means to be a quote unquote good mother. Some of these expectations come from our own childhood. Some of them come from society. Some of them come from, you know, within the relationship. There's just a whole bunch of preconceived ideas about how you should mother. And realistically, it all comes down to forming a connection with your child, forming a secure attachment with your child, and helping your child to navigate their own internal world as well as the external world. So I often talk about the fact that, you know, we give our children lots of information about the external world. We say, this is a stove. It's hot. Don't touch it. This is called a spoon. You can use it to eat yogurt. (laughs) You know, we're constantly filling our child's minds with knowledge about their external world. But just as important is to actually help our children understand their own brain map. How does my brain work? What are my personal mountains to climb going to be? Everyone has a mountain to climb. doesn't matter who we are, right? And what are some tools that I can use to make that journey a little bit more efficient or a little bit easier? And, you know, I'm, I'm tempted to say, and that's it. <laughs> I know that's a lot. But really, it's less than what we think it is. When we partial out all those other needs or all those other things that we think we have to do as parents, it really just boils down to those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, understanding your own neurodiversity and your child's neurodiversity um, is a big component around parenting in a neurodivergent dyad but also yeah the attachment needs and styles and having an understanding of like what's your own attachment style what was your childhood like your relationship to your parents is going to help you understand the different reactions and emotions that are going to come up when you are a parent Um, you know everyone has different experiences and challenges but yeah one of the things that does come up parenting and having children is uh, often things will come up from people's childhoods that they never realized would get triggered um, or that they would have to work through and being a parent it does sort of force you to work through some of those things so if you can prepare yourself for parenthood by really thinking about your childhood what worked for you what didn't work for you and understanding attachment before having children um, or working through it while you're in that dyad relationship with your child you know no matter what age they are like michelle said it's never too late that's really helpful One of the things that can actually increase people's risk of uh, having difficulties in the perinatal period is if you have had your own childhood trauma that hasn't ever really been addressed and going into parenthood without realizing sometimes I think the extent of impact um, of that that can come up in parenting and then if you have undiagnosed neurodivergence on top of that it's no wonder that a lot of mothers and parents really struggle in the first few years of parenting their child. Yes such an important point because you know I think A lot of people might go into parenting and again, you know, particularly our autistic neurodivergent mothers, knowing so much about 
all the practicalities. Okay, I know everything about what to look for, when my child has a fever, when this happens, when that happens. Um, and a big blind spot of our society at large is the impact of our own childhood and our own unmet needs in childhood. And Monique, you know, you were talking there about childhood trauma, which, you know, a lot of people experience those kind of little T's in in their childhood, as well as the big T's, which we've talked about previously in our trauma episodes. But even if you don't consider yourself as having, you know, childhood trauma per se, everyone had unmet needs in childhood in some form. And as soon as you have a child, as soon as your child presents with those needs that were not met for you when you were a child, bang, that's going to come up for you. It doesn't matter how far you've pushed it into the basement of your mind, it will come up. And I think really kind of unpacking some of those boxes is really important to actually recognizing where some of your responses and reactions are coming from. Because a lot of the time, the way that we respond to our children's needs are not actually a response to what's happening in the moment. It's a response to what we're making it mean to how we felt when we had those needs, when we were a child. Having that map to yourself really helps you navigate those turns and pitfalls and trenches and and hills of being a parent. And for autistic women, often because autistic women have learned to mask so well throughout their adolescence and adulthood that those kind of core underlying needs or even just your everyday needs is not something that's forefront in your mind. It's kind of been pushed down and repressed a little bit. And so having a child or being a parent can sometimes be the first time since you were a child yourself that you actually re-experience those feelings or those issues kind of come up for you. And for our ADHD moms, um, we know that ADHDers tend to gravitate towards um, go regulation strategies. So those kind of dopamine heavy drive regulation strategies. I'm going to do the thing. I'm going to clean the house. I'm going to, I've got all these jobs to do. I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to, you know, call a friend, I'm, I'm whatever. And when you've got a child and your child is indicating to you that they need that stop and soothe and rest state they need to engage in that with you that can be really confronting if you have never really developed stop soothe rest strategies because it can feel like well I don't know why don't we go for a bike ride (laughs) (laughs) so you know having a child being a parent really is a massive mirror and it just holds that mirror up to everything that's going on internally for us. So yeah, knowing a little bit about what to expect when you look in that mirror can ease the pain a little bit or ease the discomfort. Yeah. And I think too, um, we've got to remember that children are always watching us. I think people have this sort of perceived idea that like even when your child's a baby oh they don't really know what's going on but god children are smart they see and sense and know and feel everything um they'll be sort of modeling um attachment and self-soothing strategies from you so i think again looking after your own needs and being able to model and demonstrate compassion to yourself, meeting your own needs, self-acceptance and boundaries, your children will naturally take that in and 
For example, if you have shame or even, you know, self-hatred around certain aspects of yourself, including your neurodivergence, like again, children will pick up on that and actually internalize that. So I think having children and being a parent, you know, is such a big motivator um, actually for, yeah, having that self-compassion and self-acceptance. Yeah, it's a really good point around, you know, having shame for your neurodivergence because oftentimes if that shame is not coming from you even and, you know, potentially thinking back to your own childhood, if it's coming from a family narrative, um, that can be quite insidious. Lots of neurodivergent individuals who potentially had primarily neurotypical families or, you know, the dominant parent was neurotypical, for instance, um, describe this kind of narrative in their family. You know, we all have roles. We're all given a, a little bit of a role and a script within our family, and that's hard to avoid and not necessarily a bad thing. But, you know, a lot of neurodivergent individuals talk about how the script that they were given, the role that they were assigned in the family is some form of the idiot, and that is really hard to shake. Even if you've gone on to have, you know, success in whatever form that looks like to you, even if you're super happy with your life, you know, on paper, your life looks amazing. It's really hard to shake that internal sense of, yeah, but I'm the idiot. And we sound a little bit like a broken record today, but that's part of revisiting and looking at, okay, what was good about my childhood what was not good about it and how can I kind of take those positives into my parenting and avoid some of those negatives um, and often what I talk about with parents when a child is diagnosed is just to use the words ADHD and autism and we talk about you know the limitations of labels and unfortunately the official label for autism is autism spectrum disorder attention deficit hyperactivity disorder you know it's not very affirming or, or neurodiversity uh, inclusive but if you create an atmosphere where oh we don't say autistic we just say different well yeah it is different but why don't you say autistic Mm -hmm. You know, when we create this narrative that something's a bad thing and usually that comes from our own internalized shame, we're implicitly communicating to our children that they should be ashamed of this thing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it's a heavy cross to bear. Mm -hmm. Really, it's about unpacking all your own childhood stuff, <laughs> getting to a place where you feel compassion for yourself, and then being able to communicate that to, to your child. Um, but I will say too with that, sometimes, you know, when you hear about, oh, you've got to explore all your own childhood stuff and fully resolve that, and only then can you be this kind of idea of a quote-unquote perfect parent or create self-affirming children with genuine self-esteem. And that's not really the case actually though. You know, we're all always a work in progress and sometimes it's just about being intentional. So identifying those blind spots or those shame spots and being intentional about how you model that to your children. An example that I always think about is being a millennial woman or any generation above that, millennial, Gen X, boomer, you know, there was so much body shame. 
It was so much. I, I, um, it know, was bad. Oh, it's oh crazy. I don't know if anyone else has come across this media where it shows all these actresses and singers from the 90s that we were convinced by the media that were fat. Mm. It's like Hilary Duff, mm-hmm. um, Britney Spears when she had like, you know, a, a like inch of fat on her hips. Mm-hmm. And we were convinced that, oh, yeah, this woman is fat. Mm-hmm. And that is really hard to shake. And pretty much every millennial woman I know, Gen X woman I know, and I know that it was just as bad, albeit in a different way for older generations as well, have body image issues of some sort. But what often that translates to when we talk about intentional parenting and being aware of those blind spots is that even though some days as a mom, you might look in the mirror and you might think, oh my God, you know, I really wish I could lose this weight or I need to be this certain way. All those thoughts that come up when you're taught to hate your body, being intentional means, and I am never going to say that out loud in front of any of my kids. I'm actually going to make a concerted effort to talk about how beautiful I think I am. I'm going to make sure I walk around the house with, you know, my belly showing sometimes and not try and cover it up. I am going to make sure that I don't make any comments at the dinner table of, oh, I have, I've been bad. I can't have that. And the interesting thing about that is when we start just modeling the behavior, it actually starts to affect our own thoughts. Mm. So all of that is to say, I guess, that you don't have to be in a place where you are completely shame-free. You have no emotional Mm -hmm. hang-ups about anything. But the importance of knowing where those hang-ups are is that it helps you to work out where do I need to be extra focused on being intentional in the way that I address this with my children. So we've gone through what some of the benefits of being a neurodivergent parent with neurodivergent kids can be. Uh, Just like any parenting, though, being a neurodivergent parent with neurodivergent kids can also present with a unique kind of set of challenges. The first thing that can be quite tricky is feeling comfortable actually working on and teaching your child interoceptive awareness and emotional literacy. So we're going to have a whole separate episode on interoception and emotional literacy. So we won't go too much into that today, but I think that we have flagged in previous episodes, this idea of interoception being our eighth sense. So it's essentially our ability to tune in to our internal sensations in our body, know what they are, accurately interpret them and then action them appropriately. So for instance, if I'm getting a cue from my stomach, first off, I need to be aware that that's happening. I need to be aware that that sensation is occurring. Then I need to interpret that accurately. Uh, Okay, this means I'm hungry. Then I need to action it. I'm going to go have something to eat. When we struggle with our interoception cues, it makes it really hard to regulate our emotions actually. And a lot of individuals on the spectrum and children on the spectrum in particular, because children are just new to everything, um, have a really hard time reading their interoceptive cues and accurately interpreting what they are and then communicating and actioning them. And that can be one of the most challenging things uh, as a parent of an autistic child when you're trying to support regulation, emotional regulation. And one of the most important things to do if you have a child who struggles with their interoception is lots of communicating and narration and modeling 
of interceptive awareness. So talking a lot about how things feel, noticing different sensations, linking behavior and action to an internal sensation might be, oh, I'm really hungry. Okay, so on a scale of one to 10, 10 being you're about to pass out, one being you're so full you might throw up if you had another bite, how hungry do you think you are? Because again, that's tuning into different levels of sensation, right? When we think about um, how that translates to emotion, this is one of, not the only reason, but one of the reasons or contributing factors as to why neurodiverse individuals often experience or express really strong emotions because often we only become aware when it's at like a seven or above or any kind of discomfort because they haven't had that practice of understanding the levels of an experience or an internal sensation. It's just sort of perceived as all or nothing. So with the hunger thing, it could be, okay, well, I feel, you know, you might even do a one to five scale for a younger kid. Maybe one to 10 is is too much, but they might say, oh, I'm at a four. Oh my goodness. You must be really hungry then. I'm going to make sure we give you enough food. And then when they start eating, you might be like, they can't finish their food. That's interesting. Okay, so now that we know that this is all you could eat, maybe you actually had a two or a three, you know, so you're reflecting back um, what they're experiencing, how it feels for them and how to action that. Yeah, I think um, that's really important because when you're a young child, like often you don't know what your needs are, you don't know what your feelings are, what your body sensations are, and you don't actually have the language to describe or interpret those things unless people around you are giving you that framework and giving you that language. And if you look at the um, genetics around neurodivergence, if you have multiple generations of people on the autism spectrum or ADHDs um, all having children and children's children going down through the ages, yeah, you might actually have this intergenerational effect where no one ever talks about their emotions. Mm. No one actually explains things. Um, no one goes and talks about, mm, I'm full, I'm hungry, I'm sick, um, and, and actually has those frameworks until perhaps this generation now where we're, we have the benefit of having more information and access to things like the internet and more people's experiences um, and learning some of these skills to pass on to our children. Like uh, what you were just describing, Michelle, I don't remember anyone ever talking that way. Like in my childhood, I don't remember any family members explicitly talking through like emotions or like hanging that framework. And then, you know, what then happens is people have to teach themselves along the way and often not until their 20s or 30s. Um, so they're then behind their peers in some of those regards. Yeah, fantastic point. And it really just highlights the intersectionality or the crossover between what is a sort of biological brain-based nervous system-based difference. It could be, okay, this neurodiverse individual actually genuinely just has a harder time interpreting and reading some of those internal cues. And what is environment-based and that effect of that sort of 
intergenerational, multi-generational lack of language or explicit instruction around emotions almost provides this or or any kind of interceptive information almost provides this kind of double whammy um, for having a really hard time noticing how you're feeling interpreting that at different levels, knowing how to action that or how to respond to that. So yeah, I think fantastic point about often this generation is the first one where we've got the access to the information and it can feel really huge and really actually awkward and uncomfortable to, you know, for the first time potentially in your life saying to your child, so how hungry do you feel? <laughs> but we know for littlies, the better language that young children have, the more language structure they have around um, articulating their emotions or articulating their internal experiences, the better regulated they are overall. Now, obviously, there's individual differences amongst that, but generally speaking, the more we've got a language structure, the better we are able to regulate ourselves, And that makes total sense. You know, Mm. if you are feeling yuck in your body and you have the ability to say, I'm a little bit hungry and I'm a bit sad because Harper didn't want to play with me. If you can distinguish those two things, well, they're two totally separate needs and cues that your body is giving you you know emotions are just information from our body one needs an apple or some chips or a sandwich the other one maybe needs a kiss and a cuddle and a hug or some time listening but if you have a really hard time understanding or interpreting what those cues are you might just come home and feel like i'm angry i'm upset And then we might get big reactions and explosions because those underlying needs haven't been addressed or met. Yeah, and I think this is where it calls for parents to then uh, work on their own interception skills uh, so that you can model that language, that behaviour and modelling that meeting of your own needs and emotional regulation. So one of the second, I guess, points of challenge that people can sometimes run into being a neurodivergent parent with neurodivergent children is executive functioning. Firstly, it really calls upon you to know what your executive functioning load with just typical adult life is. And when you have children, it adds a whole extra load of executive functioning on to um, what already could be a bit of a strain for people to juggle. So really knowing what are your executive functioning strengths and challenges for yourself as a parent is really important. What is the executive functioning strengths and weaknesses of the person you're co-parenting with or your support system is, is really important. And then knowing your child's executive functioning strengths and weaknesses is important. And I think just having some organizational frameworks in place um, to try and help compensate for your own uh, weaknesses with executive functioning is that much more important when you're juggling that whole extra load of a child's schedule, all the things that you have to remember, the appointments, the objects, the routines, 
um, just super important and the executive functioning overload can be a big source of burnout for neurodivergent parents of neurodivergent children. Yeah, absolutely. And as you say, Monique, it can be such a challenge when you're coming into parenting, for instance, with a handle on how you manage your life and you feel like, great, I finally got this down pat. Um, I know what I, uh, I know my strategies. I know how I cope with various things. I know what I just don't include in my life anymore. And then this entirely new little person comes into your life with a complete set of their own executive function needs. And if they are neurodiverse themselves, um, they may also struggle with that. So, you know, it's this idea of, is it a skills deficit or is it a capacity issue? Because you might actually know very well how or what needs to be done or how you can support yourself and your child's executive functioning in various areas. But often the issue is you don't have capacity to. You feel overloaded, burned out, as you were saying, Monique, um, completely at that kind of tipping point where even though you know what needs to be done, you actually just can't do it. So this is where having those structures in your life can be really important. And the first really big one is distribution of the mental load. So if you have a co-parent, um, and, and we've talked about this previously on the podcast um, in various different episodes, but it's that idea of not just task delegation, but project delegation. So rather than saying, okay, this person, my co-parent is going to do X, Y, Z tasks, it's Everything to do with uh, showering, bathing, toileting is my co-parent's project. I'm actually not going to let any of that information enter my mental space. It's not my space. That's not what I take care of. If everything falls apart, then that's fine. My co-parent has really flunked this project. They'll do better next time. <laughs> so the first thing is that project delegation. The second thing is thinking about how can I actually reduce how many different discrete informational elements I'm having to keep in my mind. So, you know, being a parent involves so many different pieces of information, individual units of information. And we know that, you know, particularly for uh, autistic individuals, that tendency to do so well at identifying and focusing on details can actually make multi-element tasks feel completely overwhelming because it feels like compared to a neurotypical parent, potentially that there's even more elements that you're having to deal with. So we want to figure out ways that we can kind of reduce that element load. And one really obvious thing that adds to that element load is your children losing things all the time, misplacing things. You know, part of the stress and anxiety of getting out the door in the morning is nobody knows where any of their things are. <laughs> and you might have said to yourself, okay, great, I am going to delegate this project and you know, theoretically, my child is totally responsible for all their own stuff. And if they don't have it, well, too bad. They've just flunked that project. But in actuality, that rarely happens because you might feel so stressed or so responsible for them getting to school with all their things that even though in your head you've said it's their project, you haven't really given it up. <laughs> You're still the managing director of that project. So it hasn't really taken off your mental load. If anything, it's added to it because now you're thinking about whether they're thinking about where their things are. 
So a really practical strategy to manage that is every single thing that leaves the house does not leave the entryway. So even getting, you know, just a set of little cubbies um, in the entryway, when we come home from school, our bags, all our school things, everything stays there. When we do our schoolwork, you know, if they're taking back books back and forth between home and school, when I do my schoolwork, I do it and then it goes straight back into the bag. That's the only place that certain things should be is, you know, things that leave the house is in that entryway or on the desk if they're using it. Not saying that strategy is going to work 100% of the time, but wherever we can find ways to reduce the informational load, that can kind of free up some of that mental space. Yeah, and I think um, just looking at your expectations is really important too. Um, I think that neurotypical families, um, the way that families are structured in society at the moment, most parents are struggling most parents' well-being is really struggling with how our society is set up around parenting and, like, most uh, people have to work full-time as well as parent full-time. So really looking at if you're a neurodivergent parent with neurodivergent children, looking at, like, what are you expecting of yourself? Are you really having neurotypical expectations of yourself and your parenting of your children and of your family in general and really getting back to rather than imposing those expectations on yourself, your children and your family going like what actually works for us. So for example, if you have this neurotypical expectation of like for family time, I'd like for us to go out to like a museum and in your mind you have this image of, yep, Let's all go there. We'll spend all day at this museum. Have a great time. We'll be that picture perfect family and then come home. Whereas when you actually get there with all your neurodivergent selves, um, that may not actually be what everyone wanted to do um, or could cope with or what actually everyone finds enjoyable as a family. And so for your family, if what is actually enjoyable and doable for all of you with family time looks different um, or meal time looks different or reading time looks different, that's okay. So, for example, if family time is everyone in the household in the same room together but everyone has noise-cancelling headphones on and everyone's watching their favourite show or on their device doing their favourite thing and it's that alone time but together, that's okay. If family time is the autistic members of the household who want quiet time at home, have quiet time at home, and the ADHD members of the family who, you know, if they stay home, it's going to be very understimulating and they want to go out, then go out. You know, you don't have to do everything together all of the time and be like a picture-perfect family. So sometimes it's just giving yourself permission to do what actually is best for you without layering on those neurotypical expectations. And I think these unnecessary expectations can really place extra stress on neurodivergent parents and families from a sensory point of view, from an executive functioning point of view as well, um, and they limit uh, self-compassion and self-acceptance. Yeah, I agree. And I think it sort of relates to this idea that we often have that we need to be functioning at our best self. We need to be 
the most functional, most capable version of who we are every single day. And it's absolutely just not practically or feasibly possible to do that. And so when we're thinking about that in terms of a family dynamic, a big part of that, as Monique said, is having realistic expectations. What is realistic for you and your family every day? Want more neurodivergent content? Head to our page on Patreon. Our Patreon supporters receive exclusive and additional content ranging from resources, additional information on episode content, responses to listener questions, book reviews, and mental health tip sheets. You can find a link to our Patreon in the show notes and on our website, www.ndwomanpod.com. We really appreciate your support on this journey as we aim to make quality psychological and mental health care information accessible to everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Neurodivergent Woman podcast. If you have a question or would like to contact us, you can do so through our Facebook and Instagram at the name The Neurodivergent Woman Podcast or our website ndwomanpod.com. You can also email us directly at ndwomanpod at gmail.com. Bye for now.